God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. Well, God bless and welcome to another episode of Family Discussion. It is great to be with you today. My name is Marcus Ortega, and as always, I am joined by the energetic Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you doing today? You know, I'm good. It's Friday, so energetic. Maybe that would have been more descriptive on another day, but... (laughs) You know, it's the weekend though. It's got to give you a little it's pop. It's the energy. weekend, yeah. You know, it's the weekend. I came home, and uh, you know, so of course the leaves are starting to fall. It's actually a little on the warm side. It was the upper sixties. We had some rain since yesterday, and the residual of that, with in combination with the leaves falling, is I get up to our driveway is on an incline, and I was slipping, like you know, the kind of slipping that happens in the snow. I was like, wait a minute. Oh. What's going on? It's like, oh, it's that time of year. Just a reminder, the warm weather was kind of fooling me. But, um, you know, so I, I think I did get a little bit of energy just raking the, the, the you know, leaves out of the out of okay. the way. So I'm not slipping down the hill because, look, behind us is like kind of a slope. So I missed the, you know, the street and go and I, that's that's not going to be pretty. So... <laughs> We're, we're not trying right. to be slipping on leaves. <laughs> well, let's be let's be very careful because we don't want to do the next episode from your hospital bedside. That's right. Because you've been slipping on leaves. That's so, right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I'm so I live in what I think is the most beautiful place in the world, um, especially in the month of October into November. Um, the Hudson Valley of New York, it just completely catches fire with the leaves. It is beautiful. Um, and so we are now coming towards, you know, we're, we're kind of falling off the back of the peak season, but over the last couple of weeks, it was just stunning out here. And then my wife and I, um, so listeners probably know this, I'm in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, that's my denomination. And uh, recently, our denomination put on a pastor-spouse retreat um, just outside Pittsburgh. And so my wife and I went down there um, for a few days to, to spend some time with other pastors and their spouses. And it was a, it was a wonderful time. But we were in, um, we were basically what's a ski resort, but in the fall, which means you're just surrounded by these beautiful trees. And it, man, it, it's amazing when you get to just sit there and look at creation and the wonder of what God has done and the only a mind like his could create such beauty that will give way to, to winter, which will then give way to spring. It's just beautiful the way that the seasons change. And, and it's, it, it's, it makes sense why the psalmist is always praising God for the creation because it is just stunning. Amen. So, Amen. uh, 
It's been a been a good season for us uh, here in the fall. We've enjoyed that. Now, are you are you a fall person, or is there another season that really is yours? Um, I am. Um, I, I would say I, I like fall. I like spring because you know you're kind of coming, you're thawing out, and the uh, uh, colors. Of, but from a, an aesthetic perspective, I was, it's funny because being in you know the southwest part of Virginia now, where it's very you know there's just a lot of foliage and all of that. So of course we get a lot of that beauty as well, and especially since where I live is on you know it's on a hill, like we have our view, you can see the whole Roanoke Valley um from wow. uh, the front part of our house so it, that's really a beautiful addition um and so it's funny because as i was driving the other day i was trying to think do i like fall better or do i like spring better because you get and i say i like them equally both because for fall you know you're coming out of the you know i mean summer is a lot of fun a lot of activities but it's hot you know and so, you know, fall, there's a little bit of more seriousness to it. And speaking of the energy, you know, the energy kind of picks up, um, you know, you're headed into Thanksgiving, the leaves are changing and the football season's happening. Football Gotta season. throw football season. <laughs> football, you know, and there does, it, it does provide a little bit of, you know, there's a pick me up there. Yeah. But I think it's, it's the same in spring, but in a different way. Because you're coming out of the doldrums of winter, you know, the trees are bare, um, you know, you've had to deal with snow shoveling and slipping and, you know, school closure. Well, I don't have to worry about school closures, but I know yeah, you do. We, do. we do. You do. Yeah. You know, am I going to get, because I live in a hilly area, am I going to get up the hill? And then, you know, things are like, it's almost like, you know, it's coming to life. So it's a, it's almost like two sides of the same coin. I don't like heat. Right. I don't like heat though. Summer's not bad, just because of the kinds of activities that it brings. But it's hot. Yeah, yeah, it's hot, it's hot especially down where <laughs> so, you're at. Yeah, yeah, it's up here. It doesn't get that hot. But you know, I, I think it's appropriate for where we're at in our season to spend these few minutes, just kind of celebrating the things we love about creation. You know, last week we were talking about the creational mandate and um, really what what God created adam and eve to do in the garden and the work that he had for them a work that continues on and, and we're going to start with a little bit of a recap of the creational mandate and then move to something called the covenant of works and um i think i joked last time that this is where our presbyterian cards really show um the covenant of works maybe even more so than yeah. when we were talking about the creational mandate um, because it's actually, a, it's a phrase that's found in our confessional documents that we share. Um, the EPC has a modern English version of the PCA's uh, Westminster Confession, but they're virtually the same. And in that, uh, in that document, there is something called the Covenant of Works that comes up in, in a couple of different places, um, leading us to the Covenant of Grace, which we'll get there We'll get there in a while because we still got to go through sin, and uh, that's going to take a little bit of time as well. But um, first, bef before we move to the covenant of works, Lisa, um, thoughts on covenant uh, on the creational mandate that maybe we glossed over? Any clarifications mm -hmm. that you want to make before we head into the next topic? Well, I think uh, so. Our last in our last conversation, we start started talking about where cultures can go bad like you know right. is there um you know can there be sinful cultures well of course and but we have a whole episode at least one episode dedicated 
to the impact of sin, the impact of the fall on not just creation, but our outlook on, yeah. on creation. So I think that, you know, we can talk more about that after we've talked about the impact of sin, because what we'll find and kind of giving a, a broad brushstroke to future episodes is we have this this mixture, this very interesting mixture of the fact that, you know, I look at Romans 1, uh, 19 and 20, right? It's a 19 and 20 that talks about, you know, had, that God has made himself known through what he has created so right. that no one is without excuse. You know, in Psalm 19, you talked about the psalmist, the heavens are telling of your glory. Now, that's not just not, you know, some nebulous place. You know, it's not just restricted to some nebulous place, you right. know, out there. But it's the idea that going back to the first two chapters of Genesis, that what God has created is good and it's beautiful and it's supposed to be celebrated. But we have the fact that it's been marred by sin. So our task as Christians has to be, it has to be, you know, in, in the, you know, being very discerning of when we can discern good out of creation versus where sin has impacted creation. And I think, and, and unfortunately, I think just especially the way that our conversations are going today and everything's very polarized and it's based on these ideological talking points that in my opinions often simplify, oversimplifies arguments that we are, in a lot of sense, I think we're losing that kind of discernment of mm. where you find beauty and where you find brokenness. Yeah. Well, and it's it's also you're highlighting one of the challenges of systematic theology in and of itself, right? We're talking about pre-fall ideas from the perspective of fallen people in a fallen world. And so I think one of the things that I'm learning and that last the last conversation helped me see, okay, we, we have to before we get to the sinful ways that cultures can be perverted. We have to celebrate that culture is in and of itself a good thing. And like that's that's part of the challenge here is how do we talk about these things that are real pre-fall mm -hmm. from a post-fall state? That way we know where we're going in the age to come. Right. Because cause there's a trajectory here that that we can miss out on or that we can make fuzzy if we don't have the clear move from pre-fall to fall to right. glory. And I think it's also important to, how do you define culture? Because really, yeah. it is, I like Andy Crouch's definition, what how we bring men into our world, right? And create these norms accordingly. Well, in that case, we don't just have one culture. We have many right. cultures. And a lot of times there, there's an overlap Right. Um, of of culture. So even within Christianity, you know, we've talked about, you know, Christian culture, we've talked about subcultures, um, but there's, you know, there's overlap. And so, you know, even when I speak of the broader culture, like, you know, what I'm speaking about is what are the kind of the prevailing norms, but even within that broader culture, you're going to have different subcultures that influence things one way or the other. Well, and, and I think, you know, you then add in not just the overlapping cultures that we experience, but 
we're within an American culture and there are so many global cultures that have their own overlaps, their own things that have nothing to do with American culture, that when we have these conversations, we tend to globalize the conversation inappropriately because, you know, we talked a little bit, um, I, I got on a soapbox last time, maybe too much so, on evangelicalism. Um, but what's, what's key there is a distinction between American evangelicalism and the evangelicalism around the world. Mm -hmm. Because if you were to go to the Global South, it wouldn't be, for example, Catholic and Protestant. It'd be Catholic and Evangelical. It means something completely different than it does in the United States. And that's a cultural thing, and which makes it even more confusing. How do we speak about culture? But I think where, where we can pin down at least the culture of the Scriptures, or the culture that the Scriptures were talking about in Genesis 1... We can then move to the covenant of works, which which dovetails with the cultural mandate. Um, there's a distinction that's important. They're not the same thing, but they're related to one another. And uh, so we have in Genesis one um, the the cultural mandate given one verses twenty eight and following. God blessed them, and God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it." and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then he talks about the food that he's given them from the various trees, um, and, and it ends it with, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, evening and morning, the sixth day. Um, there's your cultural mandate, right? Here's, here is what we want you to do. You subdue the earth, you fill the earth, you, you can use the earth for resources. This is all culture building. This is this is a this is a value system for how um, Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, were supposed to be um, working the garden and using the garden. And God gave them their culture. It's a culture of life. It's a culture of stewardship. It's a culture of care. It's a culture of right use of resources. Like they weren't supposed to look at the fruit on the trees and say they're pretty, but we're not allowed to touch and use. No, that use them for your good. Cultivate. Like all of this is a culture that they are building, um, but alongside that culture, there is a law, and that's where we are headed. Um, Lisa, any last words before we move to that law? No, but you know what's interesting. So at my, I've been in the PCA since two thousand and twelve. And, and so that's where I started to become more familiar, um, more shaped by the confessions, uh, which uh, let, me, let me qualify this for our non-Presbyterian friends. They are scripturally informed confessions. So we're not, yep. these are not man-made. It's, you know, it's looking what, at what does scripture say as a whole? That's what basically the confessions are. And right. categorizes, you know, issues according the same way system. You know, it's very similarly the, how systematic theology does. So one of the um, the there's an alternate term that I heard from one of the pastors, which I I, I actually kind of like, and because I've always known covenant of works is covenant of works, mm -hmm. but he labeled it covenant of life. Yeah, which I I think that to me that is more fitting because when you say covenant of works, even though we know what it means, it has a certain connotation where I think co covenant of life is a little more fitting, more more descriptive. Well, and it's interesting because it is also 
uh, covenant of life is also a um, confessional term. So if, if you go to the larger catechism, question 20 and answer 20, um, the question is, what was God's providence relating to the humans he created? God providentially put Adam and Eve in paradise and assigned them the job of taking care of it. He gave them permission to eat everything that grew, put them in authority over all the creatures, and established marriage as a help for Adam. Uh, God allowed them to have fellowship with him, instituted the Sabbath, and made a covenant of life with them on the condition of their personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. What's interesting is when you go to a similar place in the confession, you see in chapter 7, um, paragraph 2, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. And so you have both titles for the same covenant. So even among the Westminster divines, or those theologians who wrote the Westminster standards, mm -hmm. there's variety in which phrase to use, covenant of works, covenant of life. And, uh, and I think you're right. Covenant of life is a is a helpful framework for us to be to be thinking through because there is a fulfillment that happens in Christ that is is final when it comes to our thinking about something like the covenant of works but the covenant of life allows for more overlap with the creation mandate I think and and it's it's interesting um, that's for confessional scholars I think to get into and debate or are they the same thing? Are they, you know, that's beyond my ability. But I think your your um, colleague in the PCA is also he's using confessional language. Covenant of life is there in the larger catechism, and uh, it is a helpful way of thinking through what God is doing here. I think you're absolutely right. Um, all right, so there are in Genesis basically two descriptions of the creation event, and I'm not. I don't want to get into the fights with people. Just roll with me here. There's a couple different descriptions of the creation event. There's Genesis 1 and there's Genesis 2, which basically is like two different lenses being used on the same event. you got a wide lens in Genesis 1. It really narrows down to the creation of the first man and first woman in Genesis 2. And we don't have a retread of the covenant uh, or of the creation mandate. What we get in Genesis 2 is what theologians have called the covenant of works or perhaps the covenant of life. Um, Genesis 2, chapters 15 to 17. Verses 15 to 17. Thank you. Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. I don't want we're going to confuse people. But what does Abraham have to do with this? <laughs> um, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Those are important things. That's part of the covenant of works. Work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Here we have uh, what theologians call a covenant, uh, this agreement between the Creator and His creature Um that has different components to it. There is a positive command and there's a negative command. And we'll get into those in a second. But um, I want to talk first about the necessity for a covenant. Why God needs to use covenants in the first place. And this comes back to um, 
Cornelius Van Til used to talk about this all the time. Uh, Herman Vavink does as well. The creator-creature distinction. So, um, Lisa, I'm curious. The creator-creature distinction, when you were coming up at Dallas, was this a framework that you were getting? Is this newer to your time in the PCA? Like, how is... Oh, sure. When was your exposure to oh, this? Oh, sure. I mean, even before I kind of dwelled into covenant theology and, you know, embraced it, um, as a framework of, you know, how we understand how these 66 books are put together, um, that this idea that, you know, that there is a separation, I think even Bart, you know, said that God is, is wholly other um, than right. us. And that we talked about that last season, you know, going through the attributes of God, how, yes, we are made in his image, but God is independent of himself. He is, is finite. There are aspects and attributes of God that are wholly separate from us. Yes. And and I think that's it's important for that that before and but that before statement, even before you got into covenant theology, the creator creature distinction was there because I it's good for us to look for, for places where there's agreement even with other Christian traditions. This is one of those places. Like uh, there are there are traditions who maybe don't see as much of a distinction, uh, but the majority of Christianity sees a fundamental distinction between God and his creation. And and so we are in very basic uh, Christianity when we talk this way about a creator-creature distinction. How that distinction is bridged, that can look different from tradition to tradition. And the, the covenant theology has a, an answer to that that may be different from our Arminian brothers and sisters or our Catholic brothers and sisters. Um, but I, I think it's important for us to show also where the lines of agreement are <laughs> with other denominations um, because this is part of the Catholic faith, you know, the, the little C Catholic faith of, of, of the whole church that we're not God. God isn't us. He is totally distinct from us. And, and we, we want to celebrate that because it helps us lean into being human um, and it also guards us from the pride that can happen when we think we can be God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think, um, Lisa, you're, you're a little more tuned in to social media nowadays than I am. Um, but our, I think pride might be a, a good word for a lot of what we're seeing yeah, out there I mean, in the social a media world. definite lack of humility. And if you consider what humility, you know, listen, humility isn't this, you know, quiet meekness, not saying anything. It's, you know, it, it's acknowledgement of our finiteness that, you know, we don't always have the answers. And even, um, you know, those things that we, you know, feel very strongly about, right? that there's a place where we could be wrong. I mean, for embracing the Christian faith, I mean, Christianity 101, there are certain things you have to believe, right? There's no wiggle room. There's no, um, you know, getting around it. But then it, and then it gets to down to, okay, so where can we have differences? And this is where an area where I am really finding a lack of humility. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think this is one of those places where, you know, there may be people listening who, who aren't a part of the covenant tradition, uh, Presbyterianism or other reformed denominations. Um, we want to we want to say, hey, what we're going to be talking about here with the covenant of works 
is fundamental to a reformed theological system. Mm -hmm. But I I don't want to press it so far as to say, if you disagree with us on this, that you're out of the faith. Because there is an agreement, the creator-creature distinction, the disagreement is where how God how God bridges mm-hmm. that distance. Um, so our answer for this comes from the Westminster Confession, starting in chapter seven, and, and, and chapter seven is really helpful, I think, to help us frame our discussion a little bit. Um, and I'm just going to read paragraph one: the distance between God and His creation is so great that although reasoning creatures owe him obedience as their creator, they nonetheless could never realize any blessedness or reward from him without his willingly condescending to them. And so it pleased God to provide for man by means of covenants. In layman's terms, then, basically, the distance between God and his creation is so big that the only way it can be crossed is if God comes to us. We will never be able to work ourselves to him. We would never be able to taste his gifts, behold his glory, receive anything good from him. This is not Jack growing a beanstalk and climbing into the heavenlies in order to be able to pilfer the glories of God. (laughs) That's not happening. We're not getting there on our own. He must send those glories to us. He must condescend. He must give himself to us by condescending to us. It's, it's him coming to us. That's the, that's the heartbeat of covenant God coming down to us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pretty key for understanding what we're going to be talking about in the covenant of works. This isn't us working our way to God. God came to us with this covenant idea. Right, right, which is all there in Scripture. You know, God created, God made, God gave. That's the language. It is. It's it's him acting, not us who kind of happen to be here working our way up to him. And so, so God condescends. And so when we're talking about covenant, what we mean is the way that God has come to us is through this thing that we call covenant. So paragraph two, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. And that's what we see in Genesis 2, 15 to 17. So here's what I want to do for the last couple of of minutes that we have, Lisa. I want to walk through really what seem to be these three main hallmarks of the covenant of works. And we'll just talk about them a little bit. So um, Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. What does that mean? What does it mean to work the garden? What what what's in mind there? Is that the covenant? Is that the creation mandate? Like what what do you hear when you hear that language? Well, what I hear is that I you know I created you, I placed you, I created these things, and now you there is an expectation of you know of making something of it to preserve the goodness. And, and this is going to be a point I'm going to come back to when we talk about, after we talk about the fall and the Christian responsibility, because, you know, I think sometimes we get this idea that, um, okay, well, you know, we have the fall and then we can just ignore the, you know, the first two chapters of Genesis as if 
you know, there, there's nothing for us to tend to or do. And another point that I want to reiterate is something that I said in a previous episode is that, um, you know, this is, you know, we have to consider what the application would be to our particular context, right? So there was no, you know, gov you know, there were no systems of governments and, you know, and well-developed cities, it, you know, involved. It was, a, you know, it was an agrarian environment, but even then with what there was, there was the expectation. And so the application, we can't reduce it to, oh, well, we care for the garden, right? What is our garden? You know, and our garden looks a lot more complex than what the first man and woman had. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is also the area where there is overlap with the cultural mandate. Um, because when we look at the other two facets of the covenant of works, I, I think that I would, I would contend that the other two aspects of this are totally fulfilled in Christ and unrepeatable for us. And I'll explain that. Explain that to me because um, I think I need, yeah. I may need to be a little educated here. Well, I, I think we'll, we'll talk about that in a second because I, th I think, yeah, I, I think it's an important distinction. But but this work it aspect, I think, does whisper back to the to the covenant of works and or not sorry to the creational mandate. And I think it's it's very important that we not reject these first two chapters, like you were saying, before we move forward. So there's a working work is good. Work is, is inherently good. Work becomes hard after the fall, but the work is a good thing and was what Adam and Eve were designed for there in the garden. So let's get to these other two, keeping it and then the prohibition. Um, keep it. Another word for this is guard it. And this is where I think we have to draw a line between what we can do and what could only be fulfilled by Christ. This is going to bridge us a little bit to the events of the fall. And and again, this is where it's hard to do systematic theology in a vacuum. You eventually move into other loci, right? Mm -hmm. The serpent enters the garden. And the appropriate response, according to Genesis 3.15, it seems that the appropriate response was for Adam or Eve to have crushed the head of the serpent. That was the serpent invades the, the realm, the garden. The man kills the serpent. You're guarding it from outside threat. This is why while the creation is very good, it is not perfect. There are outside threats. There, there is a way for this good garden to be uh, polluted and perverted. And when the, when the serpent enters... At any point, Adam could have taken it and killed it. At any point during that conversation, he could have ended it with a death blow and opened it over. Which is why the promise of the woman's seed is that he would come and crush the head of the serpent. It is a fulfillment in Christ of what Adam should have accomplished there. This is the beginning of the fall. Um, at any point, he could have, like, he never really should have allowed the conversation to happen. Right. <laughs> but at any point in the conversation, it's not too late. Kill the serpent. Refuse to sin. 
and you're good. But there is a positive command and a negative command, and Adam breaks both in his unwillingness to kill the serpent, which is why Christ, when he comes, delivers the death blow at the cross. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I think it's something that we can't repeat. Because I think what's happening here in the mm-hmm. keeping, the guarding of the garden, we can't guard it. Like, sin's here now. <laughs> We're not getting rid of it. It's 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 here until Christ returns and eradicates it once and for all. So that's at least on that first one, that's where I see a major distinction between working it and keeping it. That I'm reading in a lot of theology into two little words, three little right. words. Well, here. you know, this is helpful for me because I don't think that I've quite heard it articulated that way. I mean the you know, the the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, yes. But the idea of the serpent that he's been given this task of guarding and, you know, and there was sort of a, a you know, not, not, there was a neglect. Um, and then the serpent comes to the woman and, you know, and that raises a question for me. Well, how do we know Adam even saw the serpent, right? Because what we have on record is that he's enticing the woman. So, but I think that that is a very inter- interesting perspective. Yeah, and I think the way that that Genesis three describes things is that the the husband is there, the the man is there the whole time, and and this is um, I'm moving forward a little bit um, to verse six of of Genesis three. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her uh-huh. and so it, it seems to indicate that he's there mm-hmm. uh, i mean it's listen it's it's hard to the way scripture describes thing often it, it condenses for the sake of brevity and so all we can go on is really what the scriptures say for us rather than a reporter's video camera But what we have in the scriptures is God's record given to us. And so, therefore, we can trust it and we can rely on it. And and so, yeah, the husband being there with her is, I think, an important part of this. He should have killed the serpent. When the serpent is blaspheming God, which is what he's doing, that should have triggered a guarding response, a keeping response from Adam. Um, particularly because Eve at this point seems to already be in her head a little bit being deceived. The one who's not being deceived ought to actively keep the garden by killing the serpent. He doesn't. And that's what leads to the final part of the fall, which is the eating of the fruit. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's that seals the deal. There's no going back. By the, when, when, the, when the juices hit the tongue, it's done. On this one, right? So, um, <laughs> never, I'm never going to put that in that catchy way, but, um, so let's, <laughs> um, so the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And there's the prohibition within the covenant of works don't eat that particular fruit. And, uh, and so this. This prohibition to taste is also fulfilled in Christ, particularly in his temptation narrative. 
um, where it's it's not surprising at all with Genesis 2 in background that the way he is first tempted is taste. 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 Eat some bread. Yeah. You're hungry. It's good. Eat it. And yet he refuses. He rejects. And that is just as um, refusing to kill the serpent was the beginning of the end for Adam and Eve, refusing to taste is the beginning of the end of the serpent in in Matthew 4. You can tell I like to preach because I like to do this kind of thing. Well, bit, but, uh, then, then you, uh, have, <laughs> you know what? You have the perfect job for it. There you go. There you go. But, um, you know, that that's the covenant of works. Like, those are the three aspects to it. There's, there's working the garden, which it, it, it echoes the cultural mandate. There's guarding and keeping the garden, but then there's also the prohibition. Don't do this. Um, Lisa, I, I think the question that I have is, in as much as the covenant of works is fulfilled by Christ, uh, how do I put this? As Christians, with the covenant of works already fulfilled, the struggle against sin, the struggle to do the thing that we should do, or the struggle that we sh- the, to not do what we shouldn't do, why isn't that just simply eradicated? Like, if the covenant of works is fulfilled by Christ, why are we still dealing with this sin problem? I know that's, again, looking ahead oh to, to, to the doctrine of sin. Or... <laughs> but, it, like, it's, it, I think it's a fair question. Like, why didn't it just kind of undo the whole thing? Why this now 2,000 years where we're waiting for the eschatological return of Christ? Like, a, a cliff note answer, I guess, on... The, why why is it that we still have a problem of sin if Christ has fulfilled the covenant of works? Yeah, you know, I go, I, I'm, I immediately I'm drawn to Romans 5, and I forgot the verses where he contrasts the, um, the first Adam and the second Adam, and, you know, because sin entered the world. Um, and there, you know, and there you have it. It's like sin entered the world, and we know that and death through sin, and so death being the last enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that we are going to see the presence of sin until Christ comes back and crushes it, along with the last enemy of death. So I'm sure there's a a more eloquent (laughs) response, you know, a more astute response, but I, that it just, it, it's some to me, I look at that, you know, just looking at the, you know, just the historical redemptive narrative of scripture with all of mm. its characters. So, you know, there's this combination of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's commands, and man's rebellion, and man's rejection, and man's, you know, even his his people, right? So this is why judgment came upon Israel, because people did what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to ignore mm-hmm. who they were as the, as, you know, as representatives of the kingdom. And they wanted to ignore the, ignore God's commands. And so I think we're just, you know, there, the pattern in scripture shows us, right? Even after Christ comes back, because look, look what happened 
in the book of Acts, right? Um, you know, so what do we see after, um, after Peter's like, you know, uh, mind-blowing, uh, you know, speech in Acts chapter two, and there were those who who are like, what is he? You know, these people must be drunk. Oh, well, they even before that, you know, but even after his right. speech, you know, you have this sort of mixed reaction, right? Acts chapter five. Uh, I forgot the character's name. Is it An Ananias and yep, Sapphira? Yeah, and, and Sapphira. Yeah, and Sapphira when they lied, and they were, you know talk about judgment they were knocked out right they lost their yeah. life because of life and so all through um when paul and barnabas you know had a beef and went their separate ways paul mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know went their separate ways and you can see that even in the new testament because even why did the epistles have to be written because people like there was something they weren't getting i'm particularly noting the corinthian church who right. have all kind of issues of, yep. of the flesh, right? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. um, and and so stuff had to be worked out. Look at, you know, what James is addressing, which is, you know, is one of the earlier epistles to be written post-resurrection, right? So what is he, right. I mean, look at just the plethora of issues he's, he's rejecting. So even scripture itself shows us that this is something that is abiding with us until Christ returns. Yeah, and, and I, you know, when you, sin entering into the world is what's key here, I think. You, you, bring, you bring this up. The way sin is described in the scriptures is regularly personified. Mm. It's, it's regularly, I mean, if you think, just go ahead to, to Genesis 4. What does God say to Cain? That sin is crouching at the door. Right, that's it's a personification of this thing that is now entered into the world and is looking to wreck people, and and so it is not enough. It is not enough for human beings to be redeemed, but the whole of the cosmos must be also rid of sin. This is something Anthony Bradley talks a lot about: is a a, a cosmic redemption mm -hmm. that must take place. And I think that's one of the things that um, when we talk about some of the issues of the day, and, and I know um, I think it's next week or in, in coming weeks, we're going to talk about um, the way that sin has affected creation and how we as Christians continue our work of stewarding and creation care and all of that. Sin has entered into the cosmos. And so even though we are justified, even though we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, even though glorification is a guarantee because we've received the Holy Spirit, we are going to do daily battle with sin because our flesh is still, you know, still we carry this old dead man around with us. But also the world has been infected with sin and sin is around us, impacting us. And until the cosmos is redeemed, then we can't enter into the that final age to come. Right, um, and that's that's a key understanding I think for yeah. us. And and that's why I think that is so important because there's a reason we're called the body of Christ, right? We've been Galatians three twenty seven. We've been baptized into Christ, right, and given this new identity. But we are in a sense those representatives. We are the extension of what the first man and woman was supposed to be in relation to God's creation. So as the body of Christ, then what is our, 
you know, what does that representation look like? Well, is it, you know, salvation? Is it forgiveness of sin? Is it preaching, you know, the gospel of salvation that there's, um, you know, that, that um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Well, actually, I'd like to start with creation. You know, the fact that God created everything good, that then sin entered the world. And now, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God sent his son. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Um, and so he, through him is redemption and forgiveness of sins, right? But if we stop there, then what we're doing is we are neglecting and negating the idea mm. of, you know, the fact that God created this whole world. And so how do we move within this world in a way that's redemptive, that's reflective of our redemptive status? Yes. And, and this is where... I, uh, I want to be gentle with critics of, uh, of um, kind of social justice and people who are, who are critical of the church taking positive action on some of these issues. One of the criticisms is that we are trying to live by works, that it's basically like we're trying to do a, a, covenant of works part two well you're saved but then you have to do x y and z well no it's not that we're trying to redo the covenant of works that's done in christ it's finished he has done it it is trying to faithfully live in a world in which sin has entered and how do we as the body represent the age to come in this evil present age that's the there is a there is a forward movement, a progression of the church towards the things of holiness and righteousness, towards the things of Christ. And that will necessarily push back on the ways that sin has infected this age. And, and so I think that this is something when we get to some of the, the hot button issues of the day, we're not, we're not working on these things because we're works-based. We're working on these things because we're pursuing Christ because our salvation, he has fulfilled the covenant of works. But we have the cultural mandate and also the requirement as the body of Christ to live faithfully in this evil present age. Yeah, yeah. and I would say there is a, there is a place where we can make it workspace, but just the activity itself, the idea that we tend to creation, that we, you know, try to bring order where there is disorder because that's what sin did. Um, that the idea uh, in and of itself that you address, you know, issues of injustice. Now, what those issues are and can we properly call them injustice is a whole other story. But right, yeah, the idea sure. of, you know, of, 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 you know, addressing them in and of itself is not work-based. I think there's a place where we could take it to make it that so that that is sort of the, the the nuance i would make in that in that argument yeah i think that's a helpful nuance and and it's one that we're going to want to return to um as we go through these issues is okay are we what is our heart behind this is this about faithful representation of christ in a fallen world or is are we in some way trying to work our way into god's favor or work our way into salvation you're absolutely right that the heart disposition behind the action is really, really important. And, 
you know, I, I think we've we've done a lot with the Covenant Works today. Um, we've got some. We're we're talking about sin a little bit more in this episode because that's where we're headed. Like doctrine of sin is is right around the corner. We've got a couple episodes to go before we get there. But um, Lisa, any other things you want to share, Covenant of Works type stuff before we say goodbye oh, for the week? Oh my gosh! You know what's funny is that before we started season four, we were kind of mapping out the season. And I was like, man, we sure do have a lot of episodes devoted to the first two chapters of Genesis. Are we gonna <laughs> are we gonna be redundant? Are we gonna like drag it out? But I think because there's there's so much there, and I think that there's so much that gets neglected. Um, that I, I think that these conversations, it's it's good that we are spending so much time in the first two chapters of Genesis. Oh, and by the way. Here's an interesting side note. At my former PCA church, um, one of our Sunday school classes was on covenant theology. Now, did he come in and talk about this is what covenant theology is? You know what he did? We spent a whole lot of time in the first three chapters of Genesis. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. needed. It's necessary. There's a, there's a new book out, uh, Reform Forum is, put it out. It's by one of my former professors, Lane Tipton, and um, a, a few people at the church that I serve at, we're all going through it together very, you know, slowly. It's it's called Foundations of Covenant Theology, and it's all about Genesis 1 and 2. Oh, wow. That sounds interesting. It, it, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, check it out. It's 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 been really good so far. Um, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. We have a paradigm creation fall redemption consummation that's just that's that's the paradigm that we use but there's stuff that happens between creation and fall that maybe doesn't rise to the level of the fall or the level of creation itself but it's still important and it is foundational for how we understand what happens genesis 3 and going on so i, I think you're right i looked at that as well and, and thought Ooh, we're we're taking our time in genesis 1 and 2 but you really have to because there's yeah. a lot there. And, and that's why we still can't leave. There's other things that happen in Genesis 2 that we want to look at. And uh, and we're going to do that in coming episodes. So, Lisa, thank you for a great conversation thank today. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. And we will see you again next time on Family Discussion. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion.